0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome this evening to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are with us in person or on the live stream, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you this evening and welcome you to our Monday Thursday service. This evening and this very special evening as part of Holy Week, where the church remembers the last evening that Jesus shared with his disciples in the upper room before the trials of his arrest, his prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his crucifixion. Traditionally, Monday Thursday focuses on three key events on this last evening of Jesus. The washing of the disciples' feet, his institution of the Lord's Supper, and his new commandment for his new community to love one another. As a matter of fact, the phrase... The title, Monday, Thursday in Latin, means Mondatum Novum, which means a new commandment I give to you, based on John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And so, we could call this New Commandment Thursday. Mm-hmm. We're here to focus on that this evening. We're glad that you are here to worship with us. We pray that as we focus on these particular events, that this will be a rich evening of exalting and glorifying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, friends, hear the call to worship, and then I will pray a prayer of invocation followed by the Lord's Prayer, which we will say together in unison. Psalm 104, 105, verses 1 through 4 says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works, Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Most glorious and heavenly Father, we come before You to worship Your holy name. And we invite and invoke Your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to join with us as we exalt You. As we remember these events of Jesus' last his final evening with his disciples. Lord, remind us of the love that you have shown us in the gospel. Quicken to our hearts the wonder of Christ. May the truth of the gospel melt our hearts as we worship you this evening. And as we pray now as our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. God created the world to share his love. And love is at the heart of the uni- universe. We were created for union and communion with God. So at the heart of sin is a failure to love. So in Jesus forming his new community around his Original disciples, the church, he gives them this particular commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How incredible is it that the greatest apologetic, we want to be an evangelistic church? Go love. You want to be a church on fire for the gospel that I think would have swarms of people coming in here? Let's outdo one another in love. You know what that means in terms of confession? We need to take the time to evaluate all the ways we're about ourselves, the ways that we are selfish and unkind, the ways that we sin with our tongues, the ways that we are self-protective and hold ourselves back, the ways we fail to love. I will give you a few moments to do business with the Lord yourself, just you and he confessing your sins and receiving his forgiveness. Then in a few moments, we will pray together this corporate confession of sin. Let's pray. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, like Judas, we have betrayed you. Like Peter, we have denied you. And like the other disciples, we have forsaken you. Yet you remain faithful to us unto death, even death on a cross. We plead for your forgiveness and mercy. And we ask that you strengthen us so that we do not turn aside but follow you to the very end, for the final victory belongs to you. Amen. And friends, receive the assurance of pardon, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Friends, Jesus Christ has come into the world to reverse the curse of the fall, so that once again we could abide in him and he in us. When you look ahead to the end of the story, so to speak, and beyond the resurrection to the consummation, And Revelation chapter 21, where all of this is heading, where the story is going, it concludes, now the dwelling of God is with man. Friends, know that, believe that, rest upon that, receive that. Friends, let's continue to worship as the choir sings.
1: At last the night approached, the final night that Christ would spend on earth. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come to depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. In the upper room, he washed the feet of his disciples and gave them words of comfort and encouragement. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you shall live also. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the mountain.
0: I'm not sure if the choir is aware of this, but You Are My All in All was written by a man by the name of Dennis Jernigan. And back 25 years ago, when Evie and I were pastoring in Oklahoma City, we used to go to these things called Night of Praise, where Dennis would lead the congregation in worship. So I'm sure Evie's thinking the same thing. You don't know how meaningful that hymn of praise is for us. To lift high Jesus and sing fairest Lord Jesus, followed by you are my all in all. Friends, as we go to the throne of grace, I mean, I just keep thinking about that line, mine, mine was the transgression, thine the deadly pain. Everything that this week means, Jesus did so that we could be in union and communion with him right this minute and for all eternity. Let's draw our hearts near to that throne of grace in a time of prayer. Lord, I need to pause right at the outset and say, please forgive me for my lack of understanding of the depths and the glory and the majesty and the riches and the wonders and the treasures of the gospel. All too often, I spend my life trying to prove myself, trying to work hard enough, trying to vindicate myself and be good enough when, Jesus, you have spread your cloak of righteousness over me and over your people. I know I would have been Peter denying you, Judas betraying you, the disciples forsaking you, you, and and then, Lord, we praise you that you are the faithful one, that you cannot deny yourself. So, Lord, may we be a people that run to the cross. May we be a people that as we look at this particular night, the Thursday evening of Holy Week, when Jesus is in the upper room teaching his disciples, training them in things they do not yet understand, and then proceeding from there to go to a garden where he's going to sweat drops of blood, facing the chasm that is taking upon himself, having absorbed into himself the very consequences of sin. And yet he leaves praying, not my will, but thou, your will be done. He's betrayed with a kiss and arrested, given a trial at a kangaroo court, a victim of such injustice leading to Good Friday where he suffers and dies, a most cruel, mocking, shame-filled death on a cross. Lord, may we be a people that turns to you and knows that, Father, you have sent the Son into the world, to be the Savior of the world, to be our Savior. May we come back to you. May we be repenting always. We pray this evening for those who are hurting and those who are suffering. Lord, we know that one of the things that Monday Thursday shows us is that, Jesus, you are a co-sufferer alongside of us and with us. And so those who are suffering and can't be here, Those who are suffering and are here, those who are suffering and it may not be physical, it may be relational, it may be emotional, they may be concerned or worried or overwhelmed with a relationship, worried about their family, may they know that you understand, that you feel their pain, that you, unlike anyone else, can enter in. That you collect their tears in a bottle. You are glorious, Father, and we ask your forgiveness for our unbelief and our self-reliance. And we return to you and turn to you and pray that you would melt our hearts. That, Lord, the, message, the simple message of the gospel would run deeper within us. Father, thank you for this time of prayer and this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. As we open your word this evening, and as we come to the table, we count on the fact that you are with us, and we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may know the wondrous things written of you in your word. Holy Spirit, please be our teacher and show us the things you want us to know, both as individuals and as a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The text upon which our teaching is based this this evening is John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. All right. Now I wrote the bulletin. I should know this, but how long is a homily? This is evening. We can go a while, right? (laughs) Susan Porter's trying to tell me five minutes, (laughs) ten minutes, (laughs) fifteen. Okay. Anybody have twenty? I feel like I could be an auctioneer here for a second. I was thinking to myself, if a sermon's thirty minutes, I can go twenty-eight and a half or something like that. But Monday, Thursday is New Commandment. Thursday. The theme of Jesus' upper room discourse. I want you to picture the setting and picture the context. Jesus knows what he's facing, what he's about to go. Part of his teaching to his disciples, remember he's training them, he is preparing them because after he goes on this mission that he has to face alone, the mission then of taking the gospel to all the nations, he's leaving in their hands. So he's beginning to train them He's beginning to share with them the priorities of this mission, of this agenda. And the theme of the Upper Room Discourse is love. Francis Schaeffer called love the mark of the Christian. As a matter of fact, he wrote a whole book on the topic. Jesus, later on in this chapter, will tell his disciples, A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. My good friend Ray Kanata is a PCA pastor in New Orleans, and he writes, he says, the gospel is the difference between reaching for a scorecard to judge people and reaching for a towel to wash their feet. Wouldn't it be amazing if we would put our scorecards in this polarized society at the door, especially in the church that is meant to be the pace-setters in the world. We're not meant to follow the government. The church is meant to take the lead. The gospel is the only hope for mankind. There is no other hope other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Lord has put the gospel in the hands of us, his people. And he said, here's your job love. And we're about everything else other than love. And of course, later in the evening, the group's going to go together to Gethsemane, where as Jesus is facing his trials, sweating drops of blood, the disciples are falling asleep. Jesus is on his own in his mission. What do we learn here in this particular passage about Jesus' extravagant love? Extravagant love in this very graphic, physical, demonstrable, visible, and dare I say, very countercultural demonstration before us. The text begins Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Verse 1 begins, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In other words, Jesus, having loved his own all along, will now show them the full extent of his love. And he's going to teach this at many levels. Obviously, it anticipates the cross. But he's also preparing them to emulate his example of of love, the love which is anticipated in the foot washing and ultimately displayed on the cross. This love is to be displayed by his new community. Look with me at verse 4. It says, when he rose from supper, look at the details that he goes into here. He lays aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he ties it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. James Davison Hunter, in his book, To Change the World, says that a characteristic of Jesus' social power was his rejection of status and reputation and the privilege that accompanies them. Nowhere is this more seen and demonstrated than in the washing of the disciples' feet. This is where it gets very, very countercultural, because this was a task that was reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Commentators make the point that no doubt the disciples they would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet. They saw him as a superior. There is no way on earth they were about to wash each other's feet. Peers don't do that at all. Some Jewish people, scholars tell us, insisted that Jewish slaves, you would think the lowest of the low, should not be required to wash the feet of others, that this job should be reserved for Gentile slaves or for women and children and pupils. One well-known story of that era has it that when Rabbi Ishmael returned home from synagogue one day and his mother wished to wash his feet, he refused on the ground that the task was too demeaning. She took the matter to the rabbinic court on the ground that she viewed the task in this case as an honor. So looking from just one point of view, a cultural standpoint, their reluctance to volunteer for such a task is understandable. Now, put yourself in that room. Think of the shock, the utter shock when Jesus rises from supper, takes his towel off, puts water in the basin, and begins, he volunteers not only to take upon himself the shame of this, but to go and to put himself in the lowliest and most menial of of roles. In their minds, this is a horror. This is unthinkable. Jesus is here reversing the normal roles. Once again, foreshadowing, anticipating the cross. We are moving towards the cross We're on the cross. You know what Jesus is doing? He's putting himself in their shoes, and of course, he's putting himself in our shoes. D.A. Carson makes the point that this act of humility is at the same time a display of love, a symbol of the cross, and a pattern for our Christian life. Again, the details are at the same time revealing and amazing. The scene would have looked like this. Jesus is is at the head of the table. Scholars inform us that Judas would have been right next to him. The disciples are reclining on thin mats around a very, very low table. Each would be leaning on his arm, usually the left arm, with their feet radiating out from the table. Table. Jesus pushes himself up from his own mat, takes off his own outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist. Even here, he's adopting the dress of a menial slave. A dress that would be beneath him, lower for him, that would be looked down upon in both Jewish and Gentile circles. Of course, as the disciples are experiencing shock and embarrassed, they all stay silent, except for our dear friend Peter. you got to tell me, I can't wait to meet Peter someday. Because here's Peter, Jesus comes around to Simon Peter who asks, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus, of course, is expecting Peter to submit to him in faith. But they do not yet understand what is going on. And, of course, Peter keeps going. You shall never wash my feet, he says. He continues on in his misunderstanding. Jesus responds, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Which, of course, indicates the necessity of spiritual cleansing, that the foot washing is simply a right of and symbolizes. And Peter, still not really understanding, but genuinely loving, Je- you have to see Peter's heart. He genuinely loves Jesus and absolutely wanting a part with him in his kind of overabundant enthusiasm. says, well then go ahead and wash not just my feet, but wash my head and my hands as well course, Jesus concludes by stating the reality that if he cleans you, you are clean. But of course, he says, oh, not every one of you, indicating Judas who's sitting ne- right next to him. Commentators bring out the very interesting fact that no rite, even if performed by Jesus himself, guarantees spiritual cleansing. Judas is washed, but not clean. The text then continues When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. D.A. Carson again makes the wonderful point that these two events, foot washing and the crucifixion, are truly of one singular piece. The revered and exalted Messiah assumes the role of the despised servant for the good of others. And the fellowship of the cleansed that he is creating are to be characterized by the same love and therefore by the same self-abnegation for the sake of serving others. Do you not see that Jesus is preparing them for mission? The cross always leads to mission. If the cross doesn't lead to mission, you don't understand the cross. And you'll like this. The coin of grace, as my good friend Josiah Bancroft likes to say, is never meant to be spent on ourselves. If God has poured out grace, it is not meant to be fire insurance for you to say, oh, I can go do what I want. I'm now going to heaven when I die. It is meant for you to spend your life pouring out for the sake of of others. That's why Jesus says, here's a picture of what I'm about to do for you on the cross. This text is brimming with grace and mission. Because Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. A pupil is not greater than the teacher. You are to emulate what I'm doing. I'm convinced that one of the most horrible hindrances to the church's witness to Christ is is in our refusing to take the lower role. Our pride, our arrogance, our refusal to associate with those we consider lower or dirtier than us. How horrible and what a stench in the nostrils of our God. A man by the name of Simon Sinek wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last, and he says you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. That's why Jesus Christ is the ultimate leader. Do you think we do something for Jesus? We're about to go to the Lord's table. Do we bring something to the table? Do we have anything we can offer him? Do you think he died for us because he took a look at us and he says, Wow, that's a sharp looking crew? You see that sport coat Jeff has on tonight? Yeah, I could use that guy. Gotta be kidding. We do nothing for him, and yet he goes to the lowest place, stoops down in utter humiliation, puts himself in our shoes. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loves us to the very end. And so the only way, and then he says, now that I, your teacher and Lord, have done the unthinkable, have done the shocking." You ought to do the same. Follow my example of humility and service. I firmly believe we can be a special church. I believe the Lord has us here in this time and this place for a special reason. And it's only as, as James Hunter again writes, compassion defines the power of his kingdom as compassion and love define us. Hunter writes, for Jesus, it was the source, the means, and the end of his power. I want you to envision something and picture something. Where is the hardest place in Lake Oconee, Greene County, Putnam County, Greensboro, Eatonton, where we could go and wash some feet? Where we could demonstrate the love and humility of Jesus? Defined by fueled by. This is not a work somehow. This is defined by a people who are utterly filled, who have a sense of the love and grace and compassion of Christ upon us. That the compassion of Christ has gripped us to such a point that we can't help but go and ultimately wash feet. To see his compassion, that the foot washing, to ultimately the cross. We're going to go to the Lord's table now. And at the Last Supper, it's interesting, a transition is taking place. Jesus here is instituting the Lord's Supper. And what he's doing is he's fulfilling the Passover. And he's transforming the Passover into the Lord's Supper And at the Last Supper, it's kind of the one time communion is a more somber occasion because he's transforming it into his family meal. Remember what he's doing here. He is creating his new community. And so as we come to the Lord's table, let's do so with a sense of his love for us, the meaning of this table and the fact of what Jesus is about to fulfill by going to the cross. Father, these are normal, ordinary elements that we ask now that you would set apart for their holy use. That as we come to the table, the forgiveness that we receive, may it be forgiveness that we taste. The love that we receive, may it be love that we experience. May the gospel be more and more real to our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. The institution of the Lord's Supper in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 14, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Friends, if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a part of any evangelical church, you are invited to come to this, the Lord's table. If you are trusting Christ for your salvation you are invited by the Lord himself to come, to take, and to eat. It is our heart's desire that everyone would come to know and believe and rest upon the love of Jesus Christ shown to them in the cross. If you've not yet believed, we would invite you now to simply, it could be a simple prayer. Father, accept me because of the work of Jesus. He who confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus Raised him from the dead, shall be saved. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. So I invite you now to do that. Only if you do not yet believe that we would ask you to let the elements pass by. But Jesus instituted this supper as a means of communion and fellowship with his family. This is his hospitality and he loves you. Let's pray. Father, as we take this bread and drink this cup, We recognize that this is more than just a memorial service, that you are feeding us with your flesh and your blood. You are feeding us mystically. We are being united to you spiritually. We are really united to you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be nourished, we would be fed. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after taking bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Lord, thank you for the promise that having loved us, you will love us to the end. That even in this meal, we see that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, as we've been filled with love, may we go from this place loving one another and loving this community. You've called us to love, and we pray that we would rely upon you and you would give us the ability to love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen close our service standing together and singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Interested. We are having a Good Friday service, remembering the cross of Jesus Christ tomorrow at 12 noon. Friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.